This is That's Not a Story, a five-part podcast on what makes journalists tick and the world they work in. By the end of this series, you should have a good understanding of the challenges facing the media and why or why not a journalist might be interested in the stories you have to tell. I'm Rachel Williamson. I'm a foreign correspondent in journalism rehab, and I actively enjoy breaking unsolicited embargoes. And I'm Karis Palmer. I'm a journalism idealist, and I like to found media companies in my spare time. So here we are at the pointy end of this podcast for a hard discussion about money, who's making it in media, and who's pretending to make it. We're talking to Pippa Leary former Nine Entertainment exec and now CEO of an innovative little company called Swift Media, and about where the industry is at now and where it's come from. If you've paid any attention to media news in recent months, you'll know there's a mammoth fight going on between Australian competition regulator the ACCC and social media giants Facebook and Google. Basically, Facebook and Google are taking all the ad money from journalism that used to go to the organisations that actually produce the journalism. And now the entire Australian newspaper industry, estimated to be worth $2.6 billion before COVID, wants Google and Facebook, worth $2.4 trillion, to pay it some of that ad money. We won't delve too deeply into that here, but it's worth remembering Google makes the vast majority of its money from advertising, the same advertising that used to be spent with online news outlets. Online display advertising is still a thing, but advertisers are now less likely to stick an ad next to a random news story when they can have a targeted ad alongside a search for the product they're selling and for a fraction of the cost. You as a reader or watcher or listener have always had to look at or listen to ads in order to get your news. It's just that now the ads are in a different place and also track everything else you do on the internet. Which brings us to today's media business models. Karis, you've founded or launched three publications so far, with another potentially on the way. So you're the expert here. I'd say you can define four easily, and of course many outlets use a blend of two or more of them. There's advertising, that includes display ads and targeted section sponsorships, like what you see on Kiwi site, the spin-off, and sponsored content. You get your journalists to write stuff paid for by advertisers. The second option is paywall, and this can be a soft or a hard paywall, where readers pay for your content. Big news sites like the Australian and the Australian Financial Review love a paywall. Third, you have philanthropy, either through an individual with lots of money to buy the influence a news outlet can deliver, like The Guardian in Australia being funded largely by Graham Wood, or through cobbling together grants and donations from readers or specialist journalism support funds, as The Conversation does. And the fourth option, which is not immediately obvious to outsiders, but one I've seen a lot in the last decade, is exploitation. You start a media company, pay your journos as little as possible to produce as much as possible, and once you've built an audience, you sell the business to someone who wants that audience. One example of that might be Pedestrian TV, which was valued at $100 million when it sold a minority stake to Nine in 2018. So what do these different business models mean for the end product? Does it really matter how media companies make money? It's actually super important, Rachel, because it can have a big influence on editorial decisions. I think a good example I could give here is the now defunct Global Mail site, which was set up with $15 million in funding 
from What If founder Graham Wood. I remember listening to founder editor Monica Attart talking on the radio about the project and when she was asked what the business model was, she actually said they didn't need to worry about it. And straight away, my alarm bells were ringing because I know from experience that having one funder means one funder that can yank your chain as an editor and pull the plug whenever they like and that's a massive risk to editorial independence. So the site was plagued with problems from the beginning. They chose a very strange navigation design against advice from people who'd been doing online for much longer. And less than two years later, Wood, who was the site's sole funder, pulled the plug and instead gave the money to Guardian Australia, which also focuses heavily on climate-related news, one of his pet projects. So to flesh out how we got here, we're joined today by Pippa Leary, CEO of Swift Media. Pippa's seen some enormous change in the sector during her time helping companies like Nine and Fairfax, long before they merged, digitise their advertising strategy. So hi, Pippa. Thanks for joining us today on That's Not a Story. No problem. Pleasure to be here. I thought it might be good to start with, um, you know, your thoughts on the media landscape that you started in compared to the one that operates today. Well, that's giving away my age, but I'll go there. (laughs) (laughs) Jokingly at Channel 9, they used to call me the grandmother of the internet. We used to kill ourselves laughing on that. But when I started, which was... Back in 1997, digital advertising was completely new. Um, It was literally just after the browser wars had ended. Most of you guys would have not even been born when the browser wars were on. Um, And prior to that, in around 1994 till about 1996, it was all about CD-ROMs. So the banner ad had only recently arrived in 1997 and and basically we were all stumbling around looking for the right business model. We didn't know what we were doing, we were just experimenting. At this time, um, online display advertising advertising was still untested. You know, it was really the rise of the click-through and all that sort of stuff. But because supply was quite limited, there was only a handful of publishers that were selling at any kind of scale. Um, So what you found was that you had very healthy CPMs. So an average CPM back in the days of 9MSN was, you know, $50 to $75. But if you had unique content like, say, the AFR or one of the financial sites, you were charging many hundreds of, of dollars CPM. But if you then fast forward less than 10 years to around 2004, 2005, what happened was the ad networks entered the market And they hoovered up the long tail of mum and dad sites and offered access to an almost endless supply of remnant inventory from all of these little sites. And this changed the dynamics forever. It was was really a supply side change. So it went from a few kind of professional uh, publisher sites to millions, if not billions, of user-generated sites. At that point, online advertising became massively commoditized. As publishers, no matter what innovative new ad formats we were coming up with, and we were coming up with a lot, we were doing some really interesting stuff. Within 18 months to two years, they would be commoditized and disrupted, and we would be looking to do something else. So those who survived did so by focusing on the midterm. We would send, you know, some of our teams over to the US and and into Europe quite regularly just to see what was going on because they tended to be 18 months ahead of us and then come back and we would then put the um, investment case together. We'd choose which of those suited our business and which we thought that we could make a go of. 
Um, I think one of the best methods that we learnt at that point, and I think it's still true today, is that you've just got to diversify your revenue streams. Um, so, you know, back then we looked at creating a mix of, you know, display advertising, a little bit of subscriptions. We introduced some microtransactions. We had a look at, you know, do we become a referral site? Um, we launched a number of comparison sites. We toyed with pay-per-view. Even today, you can see more and more of these revenue models, new revenue models being trialled. And they're doing that to counter this continuous cycle of commoditization that you have in digital media. I mean, it's the norm. You just have to be trialling and, and trying to move around it. So I think that's really the difference. It's, it's a supply difference. It's such, it was such an interesting time. I do remember Pippa because I'm a bit older <laughs> than, than Rachel. <laughs> Those days, you know, when... You know, we ha I had friends who had blogs that they could make money from, yeah. you know, with Google AdWords. And, of course, that those days were great, right, <laughs> in the early yeah. days of online. the good old days, the golden yeah. age. Yeah, I mean, people talk about the print rivers of gold, but the online rivers of gold were, were really very interesting. Yeah, yeah, lots, a lot of water under the bridge since then. Obviously, there's been a lot of false starts. So I'm interested, you, you know, you did say diversification is still the thing, but what do you see as being the most sustainable way of funding for profit media going forward? You won't like this answer, but there is definitely, there's just no silver bullet. Each publisher or media owner needs to create some sort of hybrid model um, that suits their audience and their business need and their product. Uh, and their product. At, at Swift, what we've done is we've created a mix of media and recurring revenues. Um, and I'll be honest, what really attracted me to Swift was the fact that 70% of its revenues are recurring. So we deliver communication and entertainment solutions into closed loop environments like remote mining camps and residential aged care. And importantly, the end user doesn't pay. It's the facility manager who pays. And typically you're on these three to five year contracts. So with those recurring subscription revenues, it means you can cover your fixed cost base with certainty, and then you can manage your customer acquisition costs to drive favorable returns on investment. For, for news media, I mean, you can see what the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age and, and, and others, even the News Corp um, papers have tried to do is they've tried to mix those two together, subscription and advertising. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's just no silver bullet that's going to work for everyone. It's, it's more difficult than that. You've got to think about your product, your audience, and how you can adapt business models to that. How have these business models really affected the end product? and the way that people engage with the media? Interestingly, um, in terms of news media, the output of moving to um, more subscription-based is people have to, and away from advertising, is people have to feel that whatever they're getting, the content is either unique, it saves them time, or it saves them money, which means that as a business, those media companies need to become much more focused on their customer needs, what their customer wants and what their customer needs. Um, I remember years ago at Fairfax having an offsite and, you know, all, all of the senior Fairfax people were there and we were all breaking into teams and working out what, what, you know, what does Fairfax need to do? Does it need to be one team? Does it need to be a high performance culture? Da, da, da. I was in the team that argued we need to be product, obsessively product and audience focused. We needed to be audience centric. And, you know, I remember having, you know, you know, some words with Greg Highwood about it, but, you know, in his um, 
in his favor. By the end of that conversation, he said, you know what, Pippa, you're right. If we don't know what our end users want, we don't actually have a product. And we need to start thinking about the newspapers as something that delivers what people want, not just what we want to write. And I think that's how you've seen um, the media companies have to change. And it's been hard because for 150 years, they didn't have to do that because advertising supported what they did. For Swift, it's, it's been a, a little easier. We have set a strategy where we develop and then leverage a, a very deep domain expertise. We have teams that are constantly talking to our end customers, understanding what they want. And this, in many ways, sets us apart. Um, but it should be exactly what sets all good media businesses apart. We provide, you know, Hollywood blockbusters, but we also provide a technology solution that allows behind those Hollywood blockbusters, the facility managers to communicate very relevant news and information individually to residents through their TV sets. We've started working with traditional owners in the mining and resource sector, and we're creating short films about the land on which the mines are located. So we give these, we put these vignettes into the system and these vignettes explain the cultural significance of the land on which the mine is built. Then the mining company has the choice to play these short films anywhere on the platform, even if it means before the latest Marvel movie plays or before a sports broadcast, every single miner, mine worker has to watch this. So it's a great way of ensuring that everyone on the mine understands the cultural significance of the land on which they're living and working. So this means that we branch out of media and into OHS. And that's, I think, what a lot of people have got to do. You've got to work out what is it that we can give that no one else can give and how do you combine that with your technology and build um, a multiple revenue streams around that. While you were talking, it struck me that, you know, you've seen a lot of what is loosely called infotainment and, you know, journalists have those debates about, you know, how much info yeah. and how much entertainment and how do you deal with journalists who say there shouldn't be any entertainment or any, it should all be straight information and how do you get those two to work, you know, seamlessly together? I think, again, this comes back to your, your primary research on your end users um, and that will be different for every single publication, but you must have an idea of what your users want and some users love in the afternoon, a break from work. And suddenly, you know, the entertainment content is, is, is more for them. You know, it is a break for work or travel or, you know, all of this different entertainment, which I know, you know, hard-hitting um, investigative journalists might look down their nose at. But if you, if you can get a much more customer-focused or audience-focused way of thinking about your product, you'll find it's much easier to put all of that together and understand what's appropriate at what time of the day or what day of the week or, and then how to present that in a way that's super compelling and people will either pay for it or, you know, it will be so popular you can then sell advertising or whatever revenue model you choose. What are your pointers for people looking to engage with the media today? Okay, so let me answer that in a couple of parts. Let me talk about people who want to work in, in the media. I think if you want to have a long career in media, I think you'd have to be choosing um, areas that are either in niche verticals or have high point barriers to entry. You know, as I said, for us, supplying network infrastructure to a remote mine is a massive barrier to entry, but that alone isn't going to sustain our business because there's constant improvements to data delivery. 
So again, it comes back to having this really deep understanding, not only of your customer needs today, but how they're going to be changing. So, and you've got to stay ahead of those changes. I'll never forget David Kirk's reaction back in 2006 when I fronted up to, you know, into the Fairfax boardroom and I suggested that online banner ads were going to be commoditized. I mean, he totally hit the roof. Um, you know, we had a screaming match for about half an hour. But after that all calmed down, he's like, okay, what are you going to do about it? We had a plan then to diversify our revenue streams. So we knew we couldn't just rely on these display banner ads. We had to start thinking about for, for um, Fairfax building video capabilities, which was something completely foreign. You know, they're like, we don't want to be a television station. We're like, video is going to be the way of the future. We need to build those capabilities. Then we, we needed to um, build out the capability to do behavioural targeting. So we needed to start creating a data lake to get ready for that targeting. Um, and that was back in 2006. That was, you know, was 14 years ago. But the reason that we didn't get hit so hard when everything got commoditised is kind of we had these fallbacks and this diversification. I think the other real key to finding um, a sustainable media model is working um, somewhere where they have a product that is unique. If you've got unique content, then it's going to be easier to protect it and stop it being commoditized. As a media consumer, <laughs> there's just so many agendas. I think as a media consumer, you just need to be very aware of the bias. So for a long time, I was a subscriber to The Australian, but during the bushfires, I, I just couldn't do it. I mean, asserting that the bushfires had nothing to do with climate change and all over the paper just drove me mental. I rang up, I said, I'm cancelling because I just can't stand the way that the misinformation that's coming through with the bushfires. And I wanted them to know that. I wanted that to be recorded. That being said, obviously, the ABC has a, has a bias the other way around. But as a consumer, as long as you go in with you know, eyes wide open and know that you just need to mix your, your media sources up, I think you can, you, you, you can navigate your way through that quite well. Thanks for joining us, Pippa. So what does this all mean for you? Ask yourself, what is the business model of the news outlet you're dealing with and how it might impact its priorities? Support independent media by paying for it. And if you're trying to start a media outlet, think multiple revenue sources. Be sure to join us for our last episode where we're going to end on a positive note, where the green shoots are in media sector. You've been listening to That's Not a Story with Rachel Williamson and Karis Palmer. Our theme music is by MBB.